Hello, and welcome to the Elk River Lutheran Church Powered by Love podcast, recorded in beautiful downtown Elk River, Minnesota, right on the banks of the Mississippi River. Today we'll explore the Bible, life, and faith. So sit back, relax, and enjoy some sacred wit. To be powered by love is a spiritual thing, more than a feeling. To be powered by love Don't take money Don't take fame Don't take no credit card To ride this train It's strong and sudden It's cruel sometimes But it might just save Your life To be powered by love So we started with the book of Genesis, the very beginning, and moved through the Old Testament last week into the New Testament with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which told the stories about the life of Jesus and teachings of Jesus. And then we touched on the book of Acts, which got into the early beginnings of the church. And in that book of Acts, it told the story of about a guy named Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, uh, killing even Christians as throwing them in prison, uh, really bad dude, Saul. And then he literally gets knocked off his donkey, uh, has a conversion experience, and becomes not only a follower of Jesus, but kind of the biggest and best teacher, preacher, and evangelist, and really a leader of the church. And so what Paul does is he travels then from church to church, from city to city, and visits these churches. He teaches, he preaches, he helps them in their life together. And then, when he's not there, he writes them letters. And that's these books of the Bible that we're looking at today. Largely letters, largely many of them written by Paul. If you look through uh, in the bulletin uh, that's available online as well, there's all these you know, uh, books of the, these letters of the Bible that are attributed to Paul, these letters that he wrote. And so like when he wrote a letter to the church in Rome, it got titled... Romans. And he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and they called it Corinthians. And then he wrote a second letter to the church in Corinth, and they called it Second Corinthians. And so that's how we get these uh, letters of the Bible, these books of the Bible that are named after these cities. And so uh, when Paul was writing to these letters, here's these letters, here's what he did. He wrote them like you would write a letter in the day, which had kind of a form. He would start with salutations. Hey, Bill, how's it going? Uh, It's me, Paul. How did Susie do on her math test? Uh, How are things going for uh, your friend, so-and-so? Like, that is kind of what the salutations say. Uh, Not exactly that. They're different kinds of names. But here's an example from 1 Corinthians uh, that kind of shows you the format of the letters. Paul says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brothers Sothenes, so that's who Paul's traveling with, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are being sanctified by Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, grace to you and peace. And then he goes on to say a little bit like, I thank God when I think about you. Uh, here's the things you're doing good. And then he gets into the things they're not doing good. Uh, this is the other thing Paul does in these letters is he scolds these churches for the ways that they're not not fulfilling this uh, goal of being a good community together. And so uh, in this church in Corinth, one of the problems they had was they were fighting over which pastor is the best. If you can imagine that. And so I caramba. So Paul says to them right off the top, he says, he says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people 
You know Chloe's people, uh, they be ratting out the rest of the church. Uh, He says that there are quarrels among you, brothers and sisters. What does it mean that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ? Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I think not. You know, and he goes on to say that it's not about me, the leader, Paul, or about any of these other pastors. It's about being the church of Christ. And so then he goes on in all these letters. He sometimes is scolding them, but often he's sharing kind of not these stories of what Jesus did or even the teachings of Jesus, but what those things mean for how we live together as a community. And so uh, some of the things he does in chapter 11, he gives instruction for Holy Communion. We'll be celebrating Holy Communion here today, and that is a part of what he teaches. The words of institution that come right from the Gospels uh, are right here in 1 Corinthians 11. He also talks about the importance of being a community where you embrace your gifts, each and every person. In chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts and uses the image that we are one body of Christ, and yet we have many members. And so it's thinking about how the church has all these different people who have different skills and gifts that are good to share, just like your body. You have a hand and a foot. They're both very good, but they do different things. Your mouth and your ears, they do different things. Both are good. And that's what he, this image that he uses to say that the church, likewise, is a bunch of different people but one body that is better together than separately, uh, than separate. And so uh, also then, check, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, gets to an example of teaching about love and what community means and what it means to be in relationship with each other. And he says, love is patient. Love is kind. You maybe remember these words from weddings. Love is not envious or boastful, arrogant or rude. And now faith, hope, and love abide. And the greatest of these is... Love. And so all throughout these letters, Paul is celebrating these communities, wishing that he could be with them, and uh, teaching them, telling them when they're doing wrong, helping them get back on track. All of the letters do that in one way or another, whether it's a letter of Paul or a letter that was written by someone else or to someone else. And so if you go through the Bible or through that uh, bulletin that gives examples and tells who wrote and who those letters are to, what they're about, you can see what all of those letters are about. And then you get to the last one, Revelation. That's a weird one. So uh, Revelation is probably the most misinterpreted, misunderstood, and yet celebrated book of the whole Bible. People talk about Revelation all the time. And so uh, I want to spend just a little time on Revelation, thinking about what this book is, what it isn't, and what it means. Okay, So the word Revelation, the title of this, uh, the word Revelation in Greek, the word is apocalypsis. Sound familiar? Apocalypsis? Apocalypse uh, is the title of this book of the Bible. And so we hear that, and because of all the interpretations, when you think apocalypse, you think end of the world. But what, what the word apocalypse actually means is an unveiling or revealing. Picture like pulling back a curtain and seeing what's behind the curtain. It's like in The Wizard of Oz when it gets to the end of The Wizard of Oz and they pull back the curtain and there he is. That's a revealing, an unveiling. That's an apocalypse. And so it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to carry these scary undertones. And yet if you've read the book of Revelation, 
there are some weird things in there, some kind of strange and scary things. One of the things I think it's important to point out that the book of Revelation does not go into and talk about a lot is this idea of a rapture. Uh, That has really uh, gotten a lot of attention over generations, where in the 19th century, a British preacher uh, decided that the rapture was a thing. He kind of invented this idea by stringing together a bunch of uh, Bible verses that said, The world is going to come to this violent end where Jesus is going to come and take just his favorite people first, uh, pull them up to heaven, and then he's going to float over earth for seven years and watch bad things happen to everyone else, and then in the end, take some of the others up too, the, the best of the best that are left. That's kind of a weird idea, and uh, it's not at all explained in the book of Revelation. If you read Revelation beginning to end, you won't find that whole thing spelled out. It's kind of a made-up thing by connecting all these things together. And so what is in Revelation? That's a bigger question. Uh, I think the message of Revelation is ultimately at its core, it's the message that Jesus Christ is the center of faith and a faithful life. But there are some different pieces in there. And so here's what my study Bible says. It says this message takes two forms. First, the terrifying visions are warnings to those who are falling away from the faith. But second, the glorious visions of triumph offer encouragement to those who are oppressed, persecuted, or feeling powerless in a hostile world. So there's a lot of weird kind of stuff that goes on in the book of Revelation that we just don't even know what it means. It starts off with these letters to the different churches to be kind of encouraging to them, pointing out some of the things that they've done wrong, kind of like Paul did in his letters. But then John in Revelation gets into some odd sections. So here I'll read one of these more odd sections that uh, we'll see if we can figure out what this means. So here it is, starting chapter 12, verse 18, and then spilling into 13. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore, and I saw the beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. You're following, right? This all makes good sense, right? And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like that of a bear's, and the mouth was like that of a lion's mouth. Okay, this all makes perfect sense, right? And so over the years, some of these sections of Revelations, people have said that they get it, right? Like, I see this vision. There are 10 heads, and I can tell you exactly who they are, right? It's 2020, and so the first head I see, Joe Biden. He's the sleepy one, right? And then you see this other head. That is Donald Trump. That's the orange one. And uh, all of these different heads. There's Justin Bieber. There's Beyonce is there. Oh, my gosh. Jamie, uh, Jamie Spears, Britney Spears' dad. He's a bad guy there. He is. And you go on and on. And this is what people have done through history, saying, who is this? Who is that? Who, what these things all mean? And in the end... I don't think we really do understand exactly what this is. I don't even know if 2,000 years ago they fully understood it. I kind of don't think they did because this tradition of apocalyptic writing was really partially, like it said in the introduction, to, to scare people into paying attention, to scare people into believing, and to point out the fact that sometimes this world is scary and we don't exactly understand what it's all about. But the beautiful thing in the book of Revelation is that that's not where the story ends. If you think about Revelation as just a real scary, like, threatening book, you're missing the beautiful promise that is in it. Because by the end, the book of Revelation leads to this uh, culmination, kind of a climax of the story of all creation and existence where God is bringing about heaven on earth. 
It's probably the book of the Bible that tells us the most, kind of gives us the clearest image of what heaven might be like. The Bible doesn't actually talk that much about heaven, and rarely does the Bible talk about a heaven as a place out there. It's right here in our midst. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, and here in Revelation, in chapter 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among the mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying will be no more, for the first things have passed away. The book of Revelation talks about God's deepest desire, which is to be with God's people right here in our midst. This earthly world that we know isn't to just be destroyed, but it's to be a new creation where God is present here. It goes on to describe these visions of a new Jerusalem and a river of life, uh, a river of life that flows right through this city that we all inhabit. At, inhabit. And here's what it says. The river of life, the full, filled with the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And listen to this. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. Now this is an interesting piece, because when you think of biblical times, uh, they talk about fruit being produced in every month of the year. Can you imagine being able to get apples or strawberries or fruit every month of every year? Well, yeah, of course, we can because we have global trade and a whole different economy. In their time, in biblical times, that was the most, you know, just extravagant vision of abundance you could ever imagine. Being able to have the fruits of harvest all year round, unbelievable. And that's a part of this vision of what heaven would be like, where the leaves of the tree are healing for the nations. So often the book of Revelation has been used to describe this violence and you know, fighting between nations. There's going to be the way of the world. But really the ultimate vision of God is to put forth these leaves that are healing to nations, that bring people together in peace. And that's where the book of Revelation wraps up. It says, The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. The book of Revelation, like the whole Bible through, tells the story of God's love for God's people and the desire to be here in our midst as we gather for worship and as we are just out in this world that God has created for us. And so that is the Bible. We did it. We went all the way from Genesis to Revelation in only six weeks. Give yourselves a hand, everybody. You did very well. And I'd like to invite you into this prayer of the day, which we've been praying all throughout this six-week series, which asks that God would open our hearts to not only learn Scripture, but to hear it and think about it for our lives. So together, let us pray. Loving God. Open our hearts and minds to hear your holy word. Deepen our knowledge and understanding of the Bible, that it may be a living guide for us. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. And we'll continue now with our scripture reading. Today's reading comes from Philemon, beginning with the first verse. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, to do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my God, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. Here ends the reading. Well, grace and peace to you, and good morning. I had a kind of interesting... ...being a future giver. Um, now... Before you think about it, I'm not talking about future giving as in like open your wallet, give us your money, kind of a, a future giving. That's not the purpose of this sermon. Instead, I want to talk to you about this idea of future giving as the notion that we as are called as people to orient one another to a new future, to turn one another to a new promise. So the speaker at the time was kind of wrestling with the challenges facing everybody today the challenges of mental health in the midst of a uh, pandemic and following it, or the reality that this new Delta variant has more questions than answers. It leaves us kind of wondering, well, what's life going to be like in the next few months? And the reality that many people are facing job uncertainties or income uncertainties. And the speaker kept kind of wrestling with these big questions but then said something that I thought was incredibly profound, that we have a role, whether in our affluence or in our poverty, to tell people about a future that lies ahead of them. That's kind of a big uh, wish for us to think about, to orient people in such a way that they move towards a future. You see, future givers are about restoring the spirit of people in a way that helps them feel valued and loved and part of a bigger picture. In essence, they're orienting people to a new heaven and a new earth. Well, you may have heard the story of Thomas Edison, inventor of the light bulb, kind of famous story. Uh, one of his major quotes that we all might know, I've not failed, I've simply learned 10,000 ways on how not to make a light bulb. 
10,000 ways. That's pretty amazing when you think about he had more failures than successes. But what I find most kind of intriguing about this story is not that piece. We kind of all know that. But there's a lesser known story of Edison. You see, when Edison was working to create the light bulb, each bulb took about 24 hours to create. It's the days before mass production and usually required a team of people to work to make each bulb. And so Edison, uh, after creating the first light bulb, knew that the light bulb itself had to be brought upstairs and put into a vacuum. And so the story goes that Edison looked around the room and thought, okay, everybody's kind of busy and working and there's this younger boy over there who, well, I guess he needs a job. So Edison very delicately handed this little boy the bulb and said, bring it upstairs. Now the boy knew the, uh, the importance of that moment. And so as absolutely carefully as he could, he held tight to that bulb and he started his ascent up the stairs. And now you might be uh, realizing very quickly where this might be headed. Near the top of the stairs, the little boy, so concerned about this bulb, paying attention to this thing in his hands, he trips and he falls. And the light bulb is shattered. And so I think I want to stop there for just a second and point us to this question that I think in the midst of challenge, we can either sit in a moment of fear or shame or uncertainty, and we can stay there, right? We've all made a mistake that has sort of left us in a moment. The reality, though, in those moments is someone invites us out of that story. Someone steps in. And as parents, our hope is that our children make mistakes, but they make them in a way where we can lovingly move to that next place where we can guide them and teach them and encourage them and help them try again. Well, so the story goes that Edison, undeterred by the setback, spent the next 24 hours constructing the second light bulb. And so as he looks around the room, exhausted and utterly unsure of what to do, he sees that young boy sitting over in the corner. And he's, he decides for just the fleeting of moments to give him the bulb again. You see, despite the risk and the shock of everyone gathered around there, he took a chance. And this time, the boy was successful, and here we are today. Now, I don't really have an explanation for Edison's intent on handing the boy the bulb. In fact, we can only dream or speculate about why that invitation even occurred. But I have to believe that Edison saw an opportunity to change the future of the young boy by offering him another chance. The young boy could have been left to sit in the shame of forever being known as the kid who broke the first light bulb. Or he could glimpse, if only for a moment, a future where everyone is given a second chance. And I have to believe that Edison must have known there was more than a light bulb at stake. And so that's that truth of being a future giver is to know where we are headed. But at their fundamental core, I love to think about these letters in, the, in scripture as future givers. They speak into a world wracked with shame and challenges, 
whether political unrest or lack of concern for neighbor or apathy of faith, I might be talking about 2021 in some of these conversations, right? You get the picture that this is a reality of our world. But if all they did was point a finger at the problem, then they missed the gift of, a, of God's given future, a hope, an opportunity to see the world as better. A reading this morning, if you're lucky, from Philemon, we may hear this story about once every three years. It's not a very common uh, story to read in the life of the church. But I think it's so powerful a witness to opportunity. While Paul was imprisoned, he comes across a runaway slave named Onesimus, who ultimately comes to faith. And so Paul writes this letter to Onesimus' master, and he appeals for the release of Onesimus into freedom. And Paul knew that this owner, Philemon, held Onesimus's future in his hands. By all accounts, Philemon could have simply, well, had him killed for running away. The law of the land would dictate so. Or, by Paul's appeal, Philemon could see him as a brother in faith called to be restored in relationship. And Paul is urging him to consider his slave no longer as a servant, but as a brother in Christ. For Onesimus, this news wouldn't have been just good. It would have been life-altering. Paul offers a message moving him from simply banished to the outside to a hope and a future. And Paul offers good news and a future by a living faith found in Christ Jesus. You may have heard this quote before from Nelson Henderson. See, the true meaning of life is to plant trees under which shade you do not expect to sit. That's the kind of future question we're invited to, to call for a hope beyond this moment. Oh, yeah. Onesimus, there's this fantastic story about 50 years after uh, this letter to Philemon, where St. Ignatius comes into contact with a bishop in Ephesus. The bishop was named Onesimus. And so it's highly probable that Onesimus is the same story, given a hope and a chance, becomes a leader of the faith moving forward. So it makes me wonder, what good news do you need to hear today? Or another way to say this is, what good news are we as God's people called to share with a world that feels a little uncertain right now? What hope are we asked to give forward? The letter of Philemon reminds us that Christ has the power to heal the hurting, to repair the broken, and to mend the soul of a person. And given a chance, we, as God's people, get to participate in something rather revolutionary. We get to offer grace where there hasn't been some. Mercy where it needs to be. Forgiveness where none has been granted. And above all, love. We get to point people to God's new heaven and new earth. And our continued hope is that God would, would invite us to live forward into that promise. So I want to leave you today with a message from Hebrews 10, another one of our uh, letters from our series right now. 
Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, encouraging one another, and all the more as the day of the Lord is approaching. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you and your spirit. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. You can find more information about Elk River Lutheran Church at our website, elkriverlutheran.org. And if you'd like to give to support this podcast and the other ministries of the church, just click that Give button at the top of the homepage. Thanks again, and have a great week. Don't take money, don't take fame, but it might just save your life to be powered by love.